The following audio is from a sermon series on the book of Ecclesiastes, taking a long look at life under the sun. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Hear the word of the Lord from Ecclesiastes 7, 15 through 29. In my vain life, I have seen everything. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. Be not overly righteous, and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? It is good that you should take hold of this, and from that withhold not your hand, for the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. Wisdom gives strength to the wise man more than ten rulers who are in a city. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Do not take to heart all the things that people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. Your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others. All this I have tested by wisdom. I have said, I will be wise, but it was far from me. That which has been is far off and deep, very deep. Who can find it out? I turned my heart to know and to search out and to seek wisdom and the scheme of things and to know the wickedness of folly and the foolishness that is madness. And I find something more bitter than death. The woman whose heart is snares and nets and whose hands are fetters. He who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken by her. Behold, this is what I found, says the preacher, while adding one thing to another to find the scheme of things, which my soul has sought repeatedly, but I have not found. One man among a thousand I find, but a woman among all these I have not found. See, this alone I found, that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. Just joining us, my name is Justin. I'm one of the pastors here at Sacred City, and it is our uh, joy that you're with us this morning. We are here to um, hear from God, and it's our hope and our prayer that God will speak to us this morning. We are studying. We at Sacred City, we go verse by verse through books of the Bible. That's how we preach. That's how we study. We think it's the best way to preach and teach because you get to understand. the context. It's not just a bunch of verses pulled out and then preached. It's uh, verse by verse, whole chunks of the Bible. And hopefully, after months in a book, you walk away going, you know what? I think I understand what First Peter's about. I think I understand what Exodus is about. I think I understand what Ecclesiastes is all about. And Ecclesiastes is one of the more difficult books in all of the Bible to understand. I want to remind us, it's a 3,000-year-old book. It is poetry and wisdom literature, so it's not just narrative, it's not just um, a list of rules, it's kind of hard to understand. And it was written by a guy named Solomon, who many say is the, the wisest man to have ever lived other than Jesus Christ. He was one of the wealthiest men to ever live. And um, we are studying, he's kind of at the end of his life, and he's writing back um, over some things, some ways that he lived his life that were not the most helpful. And he's trying to write to give us wisdom to help us not waste our life under the sun. And very few of us understand, we don't really know what we're wasting our life when when we are wasting our life, right? Uh, We don't have warning lights that flash and go, you just took a wrong turn. Uh, But Solomon and the book of Ecclesiastes is meant to be a little bit of a warning light for us. And so uh, I'm going to pray. We're we're starting there in chapter 7, verses verses 15. You can open up your Bible in the back of every the black things that hang over the chairs. If you don't have a Bible, grab one. You can follow along with us. Um, I want you to under, to know the Bible, see where I'm getting what I'm going to say this morning. Um, before we jump into it, I'm going to pray, and then we can get to work. Uh, Father, we thank you for giving us uh, your scripture. We thank you for revealing yourself through it. So many different authors, but we know that you were the one supreme author inspiring everything that was written, and you had it written down for our good, uh, for our benefit, so that we could live a life well and we could finish our life well, that we would not waste our life, but we would find um, the purpose that we were created for, the meaning that our heart longs for. Um, I ask that you would help me because I am a man who's bent and broken and marred by my own sinfulness, by my own internal brokenness, by the experiences of my life. And so 
I need your help. So I ask that the Holy Spirit would think through my mind and speak through my vocal cords this morning that you would help people um, hear your word and hear your story. Um, and they wouldn't be thrown off by my own personality or my own ideas, uh, but they would meet you here in this text and that you would do work in their soul today. Father, we put all of our hope and confidence in you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, when you look at the world and your life in it, how do you make sense of it? How do you determine what you should or shouldn't do? How do you determine what is a good life? That's a good life. That's a life done well. That's a life done right. Well, the contemporary word for our way of making sense of life is called your worldview. Your worldview is quite literally your way of viewing the world, your way of making sense of life on this planet. And the reality is that everyone has a worldview, even if they are unaware of it. And the reason we cannot most of the time we fail to understand those we disagree with or those whom we think are our enemies is usually because they're operating at a totally different way of seeing the world. And many of us, we don't understand the way that our worldview is formed. See, a worldview doesn't just drop out of the sky, nor is it a set of bullet points about reality that we're given from our parents or our teachers. A worldview is essentially a dominant story that answers the three big questions about life. What should life be like? One. What has knocked it off balance? Two. And what can be done to make it right? Three. Now, no one can function, no one can live in this world without real answers to those questions. They might not cognitively think about it, they might not be able to answer it on a piece of paper, but everyone lives towards some worldview. Everyone lives out some worldview, and somewhere deep in their mind or heart or soul, they have the answers to those three questions, and they're living it out. For example... This week, I was reading a book by Alistair McIntyre, and he's, he's a philosopher, and he wrote a book about 40 years ago called After Virtue. And he, is, he studied how the ancient societies would teach their children virtue, thousands of years. What he points out, and it, what's interesting, is nearly everyone um, agrees with this, after even 40, oftentimes you read a book and like the next year somebody writes the book that contradicts that book, right? So you read one book and you're like, oh, okay, that's my love language. Now I can get this thing settled out. And the next guy's like, this is why that book is stupid. And you're like, dang it. Thought I had it figured out. Well, this book, After Virtue, has been in print over 40 years and nearly everyone is saying, yep, that's right, that's right, that's right. Nobody's disagreeing with it. <clears throat> there hasn't been any academic pushback to it. And this is what he says. People in ancient times did not teach the next generation virtue, and virtue is how to live life well. It's the art of living a good life, okay? They did not teach virtue and how to live well by simply giving them a set of rules. There is something about the human being, the soul, that is special, we're not computers who can take raw data and download it into our operating system to make us virtuous. It might be nice to be able to go, I, would, I think this would be nice, to go to dictionary.com, look up the definition of generous or kind or gentle or courageous and download it into our brains like in the matrix and that all of a sudden just become a part of us, right? Click, click, virtue, that'd be nice. But that isn't how we learn, and that isn't how we learn to live. That isn't how we learn to make sense of our world. That's not how we develop a worldview or understand our life. Because, McIntyre points out, we are storied, shaped animals. The principles of virtue must be given to us and fleshed out and made concrete 
through the telling of stories. Before we can answer the question, what should I do or what should I be, we first must answer the question of which story or stories am I a part? Now, to be an American, that means you are a part of a certain set of stories. We are taught this from uh, a little child. Many of us have been taught this from a little child, what it means to be an American that comes with a set of, that comes with a worldview, a set of beliefs. It comes with a lot of stories to understand who we are. A few weeks ago, my wife's grandfather passed away and we went to his funeral uh, down in Arkansas. And I was amazed. I had known this guy late into his life. I met him, you know, 15 years ago. I'd known him late in his life and kind, gentle dude and just nonchalant about him. And I'm at his funeral and I'm realizing this guy was way cooler than I thought. Like he was, a, at 16, he lied his way into the U.S. Navy to join World War II. Like who does that? Lied his way into the Navy. While on a Navy cruiser, he gets sub, a, sub, a, sub, a Japanese sub hit, uh, torpedo, hits his boat, blows it up. He wakes up, half of his scalp is gone. He's treading water. He has to tread water for two days before he's rescued. By he could barely swim by grabbing hold of things and floating on them, kicking away sharks that were trying. I, I was just sitting there like, no, no. He wins three purple hearts. And I started thinking to myself, what would cause a 16-year-old to go do that? Like, I can't, we can't get them off of Fortnite these days. That's a video game if you don't know. Like, Sign me up to go over there and do that. Well, there was a dominant American story that we're the greatest nation on earth and we need to take our values and we need to go bring other people into this. We need to go rescue the world from tyranny. That was a dominant story that it caused millions of young Americans to, to attach their lives to and go give their life for that cause. Alistair McIntyre goes on to explain how we're shaped by stories. I've got a kind of a long, extensive quote today, so I put it up on the screen for you. He says this, it is through hearing stories about wicked stepmothers, lost children, good but misguided kings, wolves that suckle twin boys, youngest sons who receive no inheritance but must make their own way in the world, and eldest sons who waste their inheritance on riotous living and go into exile to live with the swine, that children learn or mislearn both what a child is and what a parent is, what the cast of characters may be in the drama into which they have been born and what the ways of the world are. Deprive children of stories and you leave them unscripted, anxious stutterers in their actions as in their words. Hence, there's no way to give us an understanding of any society, including our own, except through the stock of stories which constitute its initial dramatic resources. So all of that to say, the ancients told their children stories about heroes and villains. They told them stories about great deeds done and lives wasted in foolishness. They taught friendship. They taught loyalty. They taught commitment. They taught self-discipline. They taught sacrifice. They taught work ethic. They taught all of the virtues through great stories because stories take abstract principles and they make them concrete. They put flesh and bones on ideas and turn them into reality. And Alasdair McIntyre says, the way in which a person finds meaning in life, hear me, this is not just for children. This is for all of us. The, the way a person finds meaning in life is always, here it is, you see some big story, some heroic story, some story that's, that's a big cause out there, and you say, I want to be a part of that. I want to be like that girl or like that gal, like that gal. You see it with this movement of young people now and they're, 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 with, with the shootings in schools. All of a sudden, these kids started standing up. Whether you agree with, all, you know, they don't understand gun legislation. They don't understand all that goes into the argument. They just saw some, many of them saw some big cause. And they said, I think that feels right. I want to be a part of it. We see that with... Um, 
the, the, the movement in America, right, to, to, to find equality for the races, to get voting rights and, and to get rid of Jim Crow. People saw some big cause and they said, you know what, I need to be a part of that. That's the way all of us find meaning in life. You trace it back. Why are you doing what you're doing? Why are you living the way that you're living? Because sometime in your life you said, that's a good life. That's a good story that I want to be a part of. I want to bring education to impoverished children. I want to take old homes and renew them and restore them and and give back to the community. I want whatever it is. You see a big story and you say, I want to be that guy. I want to be that gal. I want to be in that story. Now, what's interesting is this is exactly how God taught his people in the Old Testament. He did not just give them the commandments. Genesis 1 is not, thou shalt not, thou shalt not, thou shalt not. If you remember from the two years we spent studying the books of Genesis and Exodus, God gave his people a story before he gave them any rules, before he gave them any commands. You could call this the grace narrative. Or shorthand term we use around here a lot is gospel story. Gospel means good news. And over and over and over in the Bible, God, so God God gives them this story, then he gives them these commandments, and then later on in the book, in the Bible, he just keeps reminding them over and over and over, don't forget the story. Don't forget how I redeemed you. Don't forget how I brought you out of slavery. Don't forget how I'm the giver of all good gifts. Don't forget how I'm the creator and you are the created. It's just on repeat throughout the Bible. Don't forget, don't forget, don't forget. This was why there was so much symbolism and ritual in the Old Testament. It was all meant to help the Israelites and their children remember and embody the story. The Day of Atonement, the Passover, sacrificing animals as offerings to God, giving of their resources, their tithes and offerings, resting on the Sabbath. All of those things were a way of reenacting and remembering the story of the Exodus. Now listen, remembering. I want you to think about it as becoming a part of something, remembering that you're a part Right? If I dismember myself, I dismember my arm, and I remember, I'm reattaching that thing. Remembering the story of God is a way of bringing myself back in line with the story of the universe. And when the people stopped remembering and stopped doing those things to help them remember, they quickly started to live their life based on some other quote, lesser story. They began to chase other gods and pursue wealth as the definition of their life or pursue sex or pursue success. And it would always end in disappointment and destruction over and over. It's a cycle throughout the Old Testament. Now listen, in one sense, the book of Ecclesiastes is that reality distilled down to 180 proof. Okay, it's the reality that we live out the stories we believe under a microscope. Okay, what go, what's going on in Ecclesiastes is going on in all of the Bible, but the, all the Bible is kind of like a 30,000 foot view and Ecclesiastes is one man living out the reality that you always live out your dominant story. Whatever story you believe to be true and good and beautiful, you live out that story. But what's interesting is, see, this one man, he's not just like one of us. This one man has what we never, what we don't have, and that is almost unlimited wealth and power. The ability to actually test every so-called story and test every character. He can literally live them out and go chase them down to see if there really is one right and good way to live life under the sun. And today... We see Solomon peel back the curtain a little bit 
and let us, let us in on what he is doing in this kind of phase of his life or in, in his book. And he says this, this is, what, this is the word he uses three times in this short section. He says, I'm trying to find, quote, the scheme of things. That word scheme, he uses it three times in the text, and it's the Hebrew word hezbon, and it means the scheme or sum of things. Old Testament scholar Tremper Longman says this, in Ecclesiastes, this word denotes the explanation that stands behind the world. This is Solomon's way of saying, I'm looking for the true and better story, the ultimate story, the meta-narrative that makes sense of all life, everything. I want the story of everything, the one story that explains it all. Solomon says, I'm looking for the scheme of things. Now, in its most simple form, I've already kind of said this, every story, for it to be a good story, it has to answer three things. One, how are things supposed to be? Two, what's the main problem with the way things are? And three, what's the solution and how can it be realized? And what we're going to see from Solomon here is he's going to try two stories. He's going to test out two theories, two ways of seeing the world and ways of living. And one of them is going to, the first one here is called the story of karma or religion. The story of karma and religion. Let's look at our text this morning. Chapter 7, verse 15. In my vain life, I have seen everything. He's saying, in my life that's a vapor, my life that is short, my life that is here today, gone tomorrow, I've seen everything. As a king with unlimited resources, he can say that. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness. And there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in evil doing. Now, this is what he's saying. He's looking at the world, and now how many of us have thought this? That's a good guy who just got cancer. What? This wicked, I mean, you could go to the far extreme. This serial killer is living to 90 years old? What is wrong with this scenario? A good, die, a good person dies young, and a wicked person prolongs their life? What's going on with this? Let's keep reading. So what's he say? Be not overly righteous. This is very odd. And do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Now this is not, you might think this is contradicting the way of Jesus who says be perfect even as I am perfect. But it's not. What Solomon is trying to depict is a way of being this overly righteous. Think of it like this. Being super righteous. Oh, good things happen to good people. So I need to be really good. And if something bad is happening, I must not be righteous enough. See, this is the way of karma. This is the way of religion. Good things happen to good people. Bad things happen to bad people. And Solomon's looking at it and saying, no, no, don't be super righteous. Don't be the person that interprets every negative thing in their life as something they've done wrong and they've got to go be better and achieve more. See, the basis of the karma story is this. So how's the world supposed to be? The world's supposed to be good. What's wrong with the world? Well, people aren't being good. Well, what's the answer and the solution that karma offers us or religion offers us? You get what you deserve. When you do good things, good comes back to you. When you do bad things, bad comes back to you. Now, I can't tell you how often I hear this talked about in our society today. People credit karma for all kinds of things. I think it's a cornerstone of contemporary American religion. Even people who claim to be Christian. Now, have you ever, this is showing us here. Have you ever taken a second? Solomon's pointing this out. Have you ever seen or noticed the cruelty inherent in karma or religion that says good things happen to good people? If you believe in karma, what do you say to a person who's suffering terrible loss? The righteous person who gets cancer. 
What do you say to that person if you believe in karma? What do you say? What did you do to deserve this? Now, no, no, none of us would say that, right? But we think it. I wonder what they did. You feel it in your heart if you believe in karma. If you're living out the story of karma, the story of good things happen to good people and bad things happen to bad people, you feel it in your heart. And so naturally, even though you never vocalize it, naturally you push away and you distance yourself from those who are suffering loss and evil has attacked their life or wickedness has attacked their life or brokenness. Has, you push away from those people. I don't want to be around them. So Solomon says, don't be super righteous. Don't buy into this karma, but keep looking. Look, he says, be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? It is good that you should take hold of this and from this withhold not your hand. For the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. So look, he's drawing a picture. The one who fears God is not super righteous, trying to earn their righteousness. Good things happen to good people, nor are they wicked, The one who fears God is somewhere in the middle here. Now let's keep looking so I can explain what this means. Wisdom gives strength to the wise man more than 10 rulers who are in a city. So this is going to come through wisdom. Surely, here it is, look. There is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Paul picks up on this theme later in the the epistle to the Romans and he says, we have all fallen short. All of us have sinned. See, the other insufferable consequence of karma has to do with the universality of sin. All of us are sinners. Scripture teaches this, and everyone knows that human beings are sinful. That's why we always say, when we mess up, when we make a mistake, when we do something mean or selfish, hey, I'm sorry, I'm only human. What does that I'm only human mean? I'm a sinner. I'm not perfect. We testify to this. We get this. So, Think about this. Think about the cruelty of religion and the cruelty of karma. If you're a sinner, what do you deserve in the story of karma? You deserve to be sinned against. You deserve judgment. You deserve bad things that happen to you. In the story of karma, you deserve it. He gives an illustration Look at verse 22, or 21. Do not take to heart all the things that people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. If you're a manager, actually, if you're in any leadership responsibility, you know that you feel like, man, I I love the people that work for me, or even I love my kids, I love those who I'm leading. And then some days, you you know, you you just, before you come around the corner next to the, in the office, you just hear them talking about you. you. You just hear them, and he's this, he's that, she's that, she's this. And Solomon's like, oh, don't, don't freak out over that. Look why. Don't freak out over that. 22, your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others. I meet many people that say, you know what? I don't believe in the standard of God. I don't believe that God would judge people by some arbitrary standard, some list of commandments out there. I I, I think, you know, he's just gonna be fine with me. Can you imagine in the system of karma, if you get what's coming to you, how many times have you cursed somebody else? How many times have you said, I would never do that? I would never allow my kids to say that. I would never do that to my husband. What if... If the story of karma is true and then you go around and you actually do that someday, do you realize what you've brought your own curses on yourself? And I'll tell you one thing about the story of karma. You are a terrible God. Those idiots, they should never do that. And then you do it. You do the, the same thing that you condemn somebody else. Guess what happens? You condemn yourself. 
You can't even live with yourself. You can't even own the fact that you had your own standard and you failed your own standard. See, karma is cruel, and that's a standard of religion. Religion is cruel. There is no grace in this story. It leads to great pride in those who are doing well, and it leads to great sorrow to those who are experiencing pain and difficulty. Many Christians, they claim to know Christ, but in fact, they're living their lives out of this narrative. They're harsh, they're judgmental, they're cold, and they're aloof from people who sin or suffer. But in the Christian story, Jesus was so much different. He spent so much time with notorious sinners that he got the reputation of being a glutton and a drunk. Jesus was also living proof that the story of karma is a wicked lie, a nasty fiction, and a cruel story that you should not base your life upon. Jesus was goodness itself. He was the perfect man who lived the ideal life. He was kind, but he was killed. He forgave others, but he was judged. He was committed to those whom he loved, but he was betrayed by those very same ones. See, listen to me. Jesus proves that bad things happen to good people. Even a perfect person. Solomon is searching this out in his life. And he says, karma and her twin sister religion or moralism, do good and it will go well for you. Be good and God will bless you. That breaks down. That's a false narrative. That story doesn't work when you see good people suffering. Verse 23 says this, all this I have tested by wisdom. I said, I'll be wise, but that wisdom was far from me. And I'm going after it, but I can't find it. That which has been is far off and deep, very deep. Who can find it out? When Solomon sees bad things happening to good people, he can't figure it out. He can't wrap his mind around it. His idea of religion and karma doesn't work. doesn't make sense. So you know what he does? Solomon moves on to another story. Now listen, I think I've been a pastor long enough. I've been a pastor for about 20 years now. I've been a pastor long enough to realize the karma story is the most dominant narrative in the church. People, I don't believe karma. And then they talk all the time about Good things happen to good people. Bad things happen to bad people. When something bad goes on in their life, they're like, what did I do to God? You're living out of a false narrative. But here's, this is the reality. That's the number one narrative that happens in the church, in my opinion, in my experience. People slip into karma, okay? The number one narrative that I'm experiencing now with those that I'm on mission to and those that I'm sharing my faith with outside the church is the second story. And I'm going to call it <clears throat> the story of the next sexual partner. Solomon will call it folly. Here he turns to a form of sexual foolishness that says your happiness, your meaning, your wholeness in life, listen, will be found in your next sexual partner you have. The, narr the narrative structure of this is one, sex will make you happy. Two, sex isn't working. It's good, but it's not giving me the meaning that it's supposed to. Something's not quite right. And then the answer to the problem is another partner. See, the problem, it's not with sex, it's not with you. The problem is out there. It's the next partner. So go find someone else, and then that will make you happy. That will give you meaning. Now, let me show you this 
in our text. Verse 25, I turned my heart to know and to search out and to seek wisdom in the scheme of things and to know the wickedness of folly and the foolishness that is madness and I find something more bitter than death. <clears throat> the woman, and he's a man writing this. this. If he was a woman writing this, it would say the man. Okay, so don't, don't freak out on me. <clears throat> the woman whose heart is snares a snare is a trap for a small animal and nets and whose hands are fetters, they're chains. Solomon here is talking about the pull towards promiscuity. We could say it that way. Now, why can we get that? First off, we should ask ourselves, why is there such a pull towards this at all? Well, sex is powerful because God gave it to us. He created it as a picture of the union that God has with us. He, God's like, they'll never understand that one day I'm going to live in them and I'm going to live through them that God himself wants to dwell in the soul of mankind. They're never going to understand this unless I give them a picture of two people becoming one. So he gives us sex. <clears throat> it is meant to unite body and soul, one woman and one man, after they have committed themselves and coveted themselves before God in marriage. See, sex is powerful, but when it's taken out of the Christian worldview, the Christian story, sex becomes utterly destructive. Solomon says it's more bitter than death. He says the woman whose heart is snares and nets and whose hands are fetters... <clears throat> Solomon is not just speaking as a philosopher here. He's speaking as a practitioner. He's speaking from experience. He's saying there are many women and men who use sex as a trap. A way of baiting the hook while hiding the hook. He says they will lure you with sex outside of God's design, outside the covenant of marriage. But before you know it, you are trapped in a sinful relationship. You've damaged your relationship with God, your creator. You've damaged your own soul and you've damaged at least another person. And you are now trapped in this cycle of sin, frustration, shame, brokenness, emptiness, and pain. And many of us, when we get there, we say, oh, it must be the person that I'm doing it with. That must be the problem. The way out is to find someone else, someone new, someone different. Listen, people say to me all the time, what is wrong with sex outside of marriage? Nobody, what's wrong with porn? What's wrong with these things if nobody gets hurt? Well, that's a completely misleading question. Your teacher said there's no such thing as bad questions. Yeah, there is. That's one of them. Bad question. It's wrong, faulty question, built on faulty assumptions. Sex outside of marriage is literally destroying society. Everyone is being hurt. Over the past few months, there have been a string of suicides in the porn industry. Many have called it an epidemic in the porn industry. A brokenness, a bentness of soul, an exploitation, and they don't know what to do and they take their own life in the prime of their life. If you watch pornography, you are contributing to that pain. You are a part of that story. You are a part of the one exploiting the actresses or actors. Just because you don't see the pain doesn't mean there's not a lot of pain. What's wrong with leaving my wife and hooking up with this other person? Adultery brings a great deal of pain. I wish you could sit in my office as I speak with people who have been cheated on. See the pain in their face. Deal with the consequences down the road of all of the children and all of the confusion that it brings. The broken homes that it brings. 
I learned this week that so far in Iowa, there's been 78 cases of sex slavery that we are, Des Moines specifically, is one of the top places in the country that people are trafficked through in sexual slavery. Did you know that the most likely person to be living below the poverty line in our country is a single mom? Why is she single? Sex with a dude who wasn't her husband. Sex leads to poverty, broken homes, people growing up without fathers, people going into penitentiary, going into the prison systems. Let's trace it back. Many of this stuff started with what's called no-fault divorce in our country. Sex outside of marriage doesn't hurt anybody. You don't understand the question. You don't understand the problem. Not only that, but misusing sex destroys your own soul. In a famous interview now, John Mayer, the musician, was quoted as saying that real people don't even turn him on anymore. He'd rather go home by himself and watch pornography than try to have a relationship with a real woman. This isn't just movie stars. I meet with people with the same issue. This is happening right now. And this is 3,000 years ago. What does this ancient book have to tell us? A lot. We listen to it. We see this reality from Solomon's own life. When he was a young man, look at this. Solomon, when he was a young man, he fell in love, got married, and wrote the Song of Solomon. The Song of Solomon is a book of the Bible, and it's located in your Bible right after Ecclesiastes, right after this. It doesn't mean it came after, but it's right after this, okay? And, it, and listen, and Song of Solomon is a love song. Song of Solomon is poetry. It's a love song about Solomon and the wife of his youth, his first wife. It is erotic. I wouldn't recommend reading this to your kids at bedtime. Your wife at bedtime, go for it. Okay? It's erotic and full of poetic musings on the goodness of love, marriage, and sex inside the covenant of marriage. Beautiful. But listen, here in Ecclesiastes, Solomon is far removed from who he once was. He's an old man now, looking back on his life and realizing that his sexual drive led him into foolishness, wickedness, and ultimately madness. Solomon lived the story that says, the next sexual partner will satisfy you. And this led him away from the wife of his youth and into the arms of 999 more women. Literally. He had a thousand wives and concubines. Not only did this spoil the love he had for his first wife, it also led his heart away from God and damaged his own soul. Some of the women he married were from other nations, with other gods, with other stories, and that led him into serving other gods as well, and it ultimately brought about the destruction of the nation of Israel. Listen, this story, this story that the next sexual partner you have will give you meaning. And so many of my friends that don't come to church, this is, the, this is what they're living. This is why many times the bars are hopping on Friday and Saturday night, not just to get a good drink and enjoy friendship and fellowship, but it's to find the next victim. Their heart is a snare and a trap. They lure other people into their own sinfulness. And they don't even realize it sometimes themselves and the other person doesn't realize it until 
with fetters are clasped around their wrist. This story is more bitter than death in a lot of ways. Solomon says, he who pleases God escapes her. But the sinner is taken by her. Sex is good, but sex is not God. It's important for us to remember right now that Jesus, the ideal human being, never had sex. He was never married. Singleness is good and glorifying to God. And Jesus was single and lived a meaningful life. Verse 27. Behold, this is what I found, says the preacher, while adding one thing to another to find the scheme of things. See, there it is. He's trying to find the story that unites it all which my soul has sought repeatedly, I have not found. He couldn't figure out the story. One man among a thousand I find, but a woman among all these I have not found. That's a very, most scholars, they argue about that. They don't understand what he means. The odds are not good, okay? He found one wise man in a thousand. He didn't find any ladies. Now, ladies, don't take that in offense. Look at the percentage, okay? It's a, it's a pitiful percentage is what he's saying. And I think he's comparing it to his Second wives. But this is, this is it. Or second to 999, is you know what I mean? Uh, he can't find the scheme of things. He can't find the story that unites all things. But look, verse 29. See this alone I have found. That God made man upright. But they have sought out many schemes, many other stories, many other ways of trying to make sense of the life under the sun. He gave us two here, the, the story of karma and the story of the next sexual partner. Solomon knew he didn't have the scheme of things, but he couldn't figure out all of the details of the story that would make sense of the world as he saw it. But it's interesting to me that he did have, when he, when he tested out these other theories, these other stories, he came back to one. He had two pieces of the story. He says, God made man upright. That means God made man good. God made man righteous. God made man to know him. But secondly, we have sought out many schemes. Now, this is the first two pieces of the story of God, the true story, the story of the gospel, the greatest story that's ever been told because it's told and written by the greatest storyteller. God himself. And do not be confused when I say that God is a storyteller. He isn't spinning yarns here. He he isn't writing fictions. He's telling true stories. C.S. Lewis called called Christianity the true myth because it's got so much, like everything that they were trying to teach through all the myths growing up, all the stories of the Greek gods and all these different uh, uh, mythologies. Christianity feels like that, except it's true, except it's real. You have Jesus dying for mankind. He is our hero, but he actually came as a human being into history. It isn't fantasy. It's fantastic but it's not fantasy. And here's the Christian story. here's, Here's the story that we're meant to be a part of. How are things supposed to be? We are meant as human beings to walk with God. I want to hear, that is not a light or religious thing. When I say that, if you think Bible study, you miss it. Bible study is a way to know God, but walking with God is not a Bible study. It's not a lesson. It's not in a classroom. I dare say it, it's not boring. The one who spoke the Son 
into existence, who hold the stars in their galaxies, who created the body and soul, who invented sex. That God created us because he loved us and he created us to walk with us. He created our souls in such a way that he could inhabit us. He could come into us and we could know the center of the universe. That is a high and ambitious calling. That is far more like the Lord of the Rings than a Bible study. When he's calling us to walk with him, he's calling us to enter into an epic tale that's being spun right now. Complete with dragons and demons and heroes, and fraught with danger, and quests that need to be accomplished. He's inviting us into this story. He's not inviting us into a Bible study, per se. But what is our main problem? Our greatest problem isn't with things at all. It's with us and God. We have disobeyed him. We have pushed away from him like he is some cosmic killjoy. We have thought that he was of lesser importance than our careers or families or sexual partners. And for that, we have reaped the whirlwind. We have been cursed that our lives disintegrate as we disobey God. Our relationship with God has been broken our relationship with other people has been broken. And even our relationship with ourself has been broken. Our hearts and minds can be at odds with our spirits and souls. We would look, we'd look at our life and go, what did I just do? Paul said, I do what I don't want to do. And I don't do the things that I want to do. Or even... Our relationship is even broken with ourself. So what's the solution? And how can it be realized? Karma says, be good and good things will happen. Sexual story says, there's something wrong with you, or there's some, just find it in the next partner. The next partner will answer your problems. The next partner will heal you. Christian story says, no, 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 the answer's not about you. Did you see that? Karma and sex, it's all about you. Christian story says, no, no, no. The solution, Jesus, the son of God, has done what we cannot do, what no human could do. Jesus has conquered Satan and has redeemed all of creation and all of God's people by literally taking our sins our rebellion to the cross and paying for them there with his own sinless life. Then his death and his resurrection accomplished this redemption for us. And right now, after he was ascended, he went to the right hand of God. And right now, Jesus is literally making all things new. Right now. Jesus is sitting on the throne of the universe at the right hand of God and overseeing and implementing the fulfillment of this epic plan of redemption. And one day in the future, that plan will be complete and finalized and sin will be eradicated from this planet and from God's people. And we will once again live in a perfect union with God, with others, and with our created world. See, karma says good things happen to good people and bad things happen to bad people. But the Christian story says terrible things happen to the only perfect person. Jesus, so that good things could happen to all of us sinful people by grace. Terrible things happen to a perfect man so that imperfect people like us who deserve bad things can have good things, can have grace. And the story of your 
next sexual partner says you can find meaning or fulfillment through sex, the Christian story says, no, 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 no. You don't understand how big your soul is. Your desires are so unquenchable that only God can fulfill them. Solomon's told us a few chapters back, God has placed eternity in the human heart. You were made by God for God. Now listen, this is the true story of everything. This is the narrative that we are caught up in right now. The question is, is that the story you're living for right now? Are you living out of some lesser story? Now, many of us, if you're living out of some lesser story, you've been caught in it so long, many of, many of you lack the courage to actually tell someone I'm caught in this sin. I'm caught in this story and I need help getting out because you failed yourself so many times that you don't want to let anybody else know because they might find out that you're a failure and you're lacking courage. And I know a lot of people who are like, I don't know how to get courage. I don't know how to get out of the story that I'm in and live like I'm in the story of God. And there's, and it's like they want me to give them a vile verse or they want me to tell them, like in our society, like there's a pill for that or there's a, a prayer for that or there's this for that. There's not, there's not. The closest thing I can come is by going to an epic story and giving you a little bit of a picture of how we're changed as people. And of course, I'm going to tell it from the Lord of the Rings been a while since I talked about it, so I, I get it. I, I, the elders only give me like, a, they give me a stipend. I can only go here so often. <clears throat> There's a scene in The Return of the King, um, the end of The Lord of the Rings, and they're in this great battle, and there's this woman, her name is Eowyn, and she is virtuous. She is everything that a warrior princess should be. She is beautiful, she is courageous, she is kind, she is strong-hearted, she is loving, she is, she is awesome. And the men all ride off to battle, and she's told to stay home and watch, uh, and watch over the, the kids at home and all the families at home, which is a great responsibility. But like many, <laughs> like many ladies, she's, uh-uh, no, I ain't staying at home with the kids. I'm going out to battle. And what she does is... She puts on the, the, the warrior garb of a man. She puts on the helmet of a man and she's riding into battle with all the men and she looks like just one of the men. And she's got this little hobbit who's a little guy like this tall who all through the, the movie and all through the book, you realize these guys, there's not much special about these guys, okay? Um, they're not strong. They're not very smart most of the time. And, and, and uh, he's coming with her and he looks up into her face and he sees fear. He sees the loss of hope that they're going into a battle that she knows they're going to lose, but she goes anyways because she's courageous. And they're going into a battle, and this battle is against not just physical forces, human beings, it's against spiritual forces. I'm just going to say Satan and his hordes. It's against demons. It's against mythical creatures, right? Representing the forces of evil that we are set against here in our world that we don't see, spiritual, the spiritual war. And she's far outmatched and she's far outgunned. And just so happens that on the battlefield, this uh, Wraith and uh, Nazgul, that's the name of them, sorry, strike down the king. And she sees it and she rushes towards the king and she jumps off her horse. And in the movie, they, they add this story in the movie, which I do like. He's like, who, who do you, you know, I've never been... A, beaten by a man, and she's like, she takes off the helmet, good, because I'm not a man. And her, and the book happens, her blonde hair falls down, and her beauty shines on the battlefield, and Mary 
is watching all of this and he's just kind of hiding because he's this little guy like this with a little bitty sword and doesn't know what to do and he's hiding. He's not courageous and he's not victorious and he's not a hero and he's not, you know, a great doer of great deeds. And he's watching her, but as she stands up in the face of insurmountable odds, knowing she's going to die in front of this demon creature, yet she, her face shines and she pulls her sword and she attacks. This is what Pippin says. Or Mary says, or says this, pity filled his heart and great wonder. And suddenly the slow kindled courage of his, way, of his race awoke. There was something dormant in Mary. He said, it's a slow kindled courage of his race. There's something in him he doesn't even know is there. And he's watching this woman who's about to do a great deed or attempt a great deed in the face of death and something in him says, help her. This is what it says. He clenched his hand. She should not die. So fair, so desperate. At least she should not die alone, unaided. See, in this moment, He's looking on a person whom he loves, who's doing a great deed and giving a great sacrifice and something in him moves internally and it says this, I want to be a part of her story. She might die, but she shouldn't die alone, unaided. I'm going to join myself to her. I'm going to make my story a part of her story. And he comes over, and it's a great scene because the, the, the demon is about to attack her, and she, she's fighting it, and she's about to die, and all of his attention's on her, and this little guy runs up with his little sword and just whack right in the back of the leg. And he turns around to look at him, and she takes him out. It's amazing. <laughs> right? But listen... What's going on in his heart? What's going on in the heart of Mary? Here it is, listen. It's faith. That's how faith works. It saw this great sacrifice. It saw this great deed being done for him. She's about to die to save everyone else. And the faith in his heart says, I want to be a part of that. I want to be in that story. And it stirs up this deep-seated courage that he had, didn't even know he had. That's the way faith works in our heart when we look to Christ in the story. That faith rises up. Our hearts have to be moved by Jesus. Karma doesn't move you. We have to see Jesus' great sacrifice for us and let that courage and wonder rise in our souls and say, he will not die alone. He will not die unaided. My story will be a part of his story. From here on out, I will live for him and no one else. Now, I won't do it perfectly. I will still sin. That's why he had to die for me but I will do it still. I will do it imperfectly. I will do it broken. I will do it intermittently. I will do it pathetically sometimes, but I will do it nonetheless. When I fail, I will repent and believe the gospel. Even this sin was crucified on the cross. And I, as I look to Christ, courage and faith will burn in my heart. My hope is in Jesus. He is making all things new. One more story. Just because I was done, but now I'm going to say one more. I think this one is from C.S. Lewis in the village of, or the, the voyage of the Dawn Treader. Um, it's coming out of memory, so it might be a little off, but they been, have been led by Aslan out of this great trial, this great war, this great battle, and they felt rescued, and they get in this boat, and they're traveling across the seas, and storms arise, and, it, and everyone in the boat is absolutely certain they're going to die. They're going to be destroyed. And yet, I think it's Lucy, she hears this voice on the wind 
Take courage, dear heart. Take courage. And are internally, nothing on the outside changes. Internally, she believes it. She receives it. She says, yes, take courage. She said, that's the voice of Aslan. That's the voice of God. He's telling me in the moment, take courage, dear heart. And she does. And moments later, moments later, she's already taken courage. I, we, we can do this. The clouds part. Right? Calm seas happen. And it says, she realized there was nothing ever to worry about. She was going through the storm, but it was never going to take her out. It was never going to kill her. Aslan is in control. God is in control. Same for us. Take courage, dear heart. Our God is in control. Let me pray. Father, I, I thank you for not just giving us the Ten Commandments. I thank you for giving us a story story that's meant to stir our hearts, a true story, a true story. I pray that we would be shaped by it. We would live out the part that we've been given. We would see ourselves as part of your story. We would teach our children your story. You're not just calling good little boys and good little girls to have Bible studies. This is a story about a dragon that's been conquered by Christ and one day in the future will be thrown into the pit and we will rule and reign with you like kings and queens. Would you help us live that out? Would you give us the courage to say no to the sin and the other stories and to say yes to your story? Christ Jesus, we look to you, our hero, our shepherd who leads us through the valley of the shadow of death where we will fear no evil because you whisper to our hearts, take courage, dear heart, because you have conquered for us. As we come, I pray that you'd help us believe that as we come to your table, that this is and the enactment of the story. This is to remind us of the story that we're a part of. That the night that you were betrayed, you took this bread and you broke it and you said, this body is broken for you. Eat it in remembrance of me. And the cup of the wine, you took it and you said, this is my blood that was shed for you. That you are the one who's making all things new. It's not dependent upon us. So we come this morning as sinners in need of grace and we come with dirty, sinful hands and we open it up to you and you place the spotless, sinless body of Christ into our hands and we dip it in the blood of Christ that covers all of our sins and we eat it and we eat it as worship. I pray that we would embody it today for your glory, for our joy. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.